Okay. Now, with that said, today we're going we're gonna to jump back into this last section of the Shield of Faith teaching that I've been talking about in, in our larger Armor of God series. And just as a very you know, super quick recap, we began uh, a couple of months ago talking through Ephesians 6, teaching through Ephesians 6, which is an incredibly powerful passage of Scripture where Paul lays out some very important things we need to be able to exist and flourish on earth in the name of Jesus. And each piece of armor has a specific spiritual metaphor that it applies to our life. We've talked about the importance of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. And we are in this section, at least at the back end of it today, where we've talked about the shield of faith. And leading up to this, we firmly established what faith is and isn't. That's been the goal in my teaching over the past several teachings here. All of those are online. If you uh, missed them, want to follow up on them, we're not going to jump back into them today. But the premise of all those teachings, we looked at this from multiple angles, is describing that everyone in the world believes or has faith in something. Whether or not they know it is another story. The big idea we've been trying to apply throughout all of this is to make sure that we've not knowingly or unknowingly arrived at a place in our lives where we trust in something that isn't Jesus, hoping it satisfies our souls in a way that only Jesus can. And over these teachings, we've examined certain types of faith, some of them not healthy. They have, they have the brand of faith on them, but they're actually not real or genuine faith. And the one we discussed just before me missing you for a few weeks was from John chapter 4. It precedes what we're going to talk about today. And it is what we refer to as the Galilean faith. This is what John writes about. The Galileans, like a lot of people, they practiced, at least when they were trying to approach Jesus in the first century, they practiced what we identified as a transactional faith. And that's sort of a self-explanatory term. What it simply means is they heard about this guy named Jesus. They chose to believe, follow, trust in him to some degree, not because of their genuine love or adoration for him, not because they wanted to know who he was or to understand him more deeply. They heard that he did some pretty great things, that he was able to, to heal and to care for people, that he was generous. They heard he did some really great things. And because of that, they traded their love for him to get something from him. The problem with the Galilean faith, and it stands in sharp contrast to what we're going to talk about today, is they believe in Jesus, they love Jesus, fill in your blank, not because they actually love Jesus, but because they believe he can do something for them. And that, if you've ever been in an unhealthy relationship, is probably the greatest example of what an unhealthy relationship is. It's incredibly utilitarian. You want to be with somebody, you want to be around somebody, you want to be in their life, not because you genuinely enjoy their presence, but because you know by being next to them, you can get something from them. And that might seem beneficial for the one that's extracting, but it's very unhealthy for the person who is being taken advantage of. It's an incredibly abusive form of relationship. And that's what happens here. And so the reason this common form of false faith is so questionable, transactional faith, is because it's a transaction steeped in the trading of services. And when it comes to Jesus, this is a real problem because we can't trade services with God. In fact, to believe this or to practice faith this way, it actually undermines the crux of everything we believe as Christians. If we could trade something to Jesus to get him to love us, we wouldn't need Jesus or the cross he died for us on. The challenge with this is that it actually makes Jesus less valuable, and it eventually leads to a very hard type of faith, probably even a callous understanding of how God loves and cares for us. In other words, you're not loving Jesus because of Jesus. You're loving Jesus because of what you can, you can get from him, a God on demand. And all of this, that, that backdrop, I won't spend any more time there, but that story 
That example, John writes about it, how Jesus dealt with the Galileans, that is what precedes what is probably my favorite passage in the New Testament when it comes to a story of faith. There's lots of great ones, but this one touches on all of the human emotions. All of this has led us to this last part of the passage we're going to look at in John 4. It's the main point of this faith story, and we might even say it's the summation of everything we have been talking about from the front of the room when it comes to faith. Jesus has this interaction with a a royal official. This is a person of very high notoriety in his community, somebody that is probably like a government official, okay? Somebody who's really well-known and has a lot of power and authority. We know this about him. That's what John tells us. But we also know that he is a, a father. And what's interesting about this text is that the position of royal officials seems to be secondary to the identity of father. It is the father that drives what happens in what we're going to study today, not the position of authority. And we'll unpack that here in a few moments. What's interesting here is this story begins very similar to the way the Galilean story does. This guy shows up needing something from Jesus. But in the midst of all of this, he develops a burgeoning faith, which eventually becomes something that we believe is pretty genuine. And this leads me to the only and the last faith truth we'll talk about in this little section in the armor of God. The mark of true faith, especially when it is in our lives, when it is in practice, the mark of true faith in our lives is when we learn to take Jesus at his word. It's when we learn to trust Jesus, trust his word. It's when we learn to hear from him and to doubt our doubts and do our best to try to understand what he is saying and how he is saying it. I want to read to you from John 4, 46 through 50. This is just a small sliver of what was just read. It is the crux of where we'll be discussing today. There was a certain royal official. We don't know who he is, but we know he was royal and important, whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, this is where he just was with the Galileans, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And then Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. This is a plea of desperation here, obviously. Jesus says, go, your son will live. And this little sentence here that John tells us, the, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. It's such a short sentence. And that's essentially what we're going to talk about today. Because there's a deep well of life and faith and emotion, and struggle, and perseverance, and victory, and challenge, all up in what this guy did. This one action signifies there's a subtext in this guy's heart that leads him to actually do this. And the thing I want to talk about as we begin this this morning is this, this interaction between Jesus and this royal official, it shows us something of a hard truth. It shows us that the true faith is often birthed out of a genuine human need. This interaction doesn't come out of nowhere. There is something deeply driving this. And what is driving this is human need. In many ways, this royal official and father, they they begin this this conversation with Jesus in the same way the Galileans did. He's got an issue going on in his life. He needs something. He's got a sick kid. If you're a parent or you have been around children, there's probably no worse thing that can happen than watching your, your child suffer. And so he has got a very, very sick kid, one who is close to death. This is a major issue going on in his life. And John tells us this official is a person of power, a person likely used to being in control of things. Yet once again, we see that suffering is no respecter of persons. Every single philosopher, it doesn't matter what part of the world you're looking at, at some point, this statement is sort of at the crux of everything they're trying to sort out in life. Why do we suffer? Why does it happen? 
Why can you know, bad things happen to good people? Can we still exist on this earth and, and live well with suffering in our lives? Suffering, as terrible as it can be, oftentimes can bring about really incredible things. I am not saying suffering is incredible. What I'm saying is that it is often the catalyst that gets us thinking in ways that might challenge us in ways that cause us to grow in ways we would have never been able to without it. And so don't hear me arguing for the fact that I like suffering or long for it. I'm just, in fact, like being wobbly with my head these past couple of weeks has been an interesting sort of, it's, it's been an interesting application for me. It respects nobody. Suffering just sort of does what it does when it does what it does. And right here, you've got a high and mighty person who loves his kid who is watching him die and he doesn't know what to do. No respecter of person suffering it. His current circumstances, this I find even more interesting, his current circumstances render his power, his authority, and his resources useless. So this is a guy who gets stuff done, but he's facing a situation where he can't get anything done. In other words, his earthly resources cannot match the power of this problem. And what this communicates, what this becomes, if you want to know what the emotional outcome of this for us is, what this feels like, is he's got a situation he can't control. So that's the emotion. If you've ever had something going on in your life that you could not control, that you felt your life would be better off if you could control, you know that sort of black hole feeling you get there. That's where this guy is. And think about this. A guy driven out of desperation. And it's very fair to say that human suffering is one of the things God is redeeming in this passage to help him understand genuine faith. It's clear he loves his son and is willing to do anything to see him healed of this illness, whatever it is. And because his son is close to death, what he does, here's an interesting fun fact looking at the geography. He does what any good parent would have done. He didn't walk from one house to another. He walked roughly 25 miles from Capernaum to Galilee. This is a 25-mile journey. This is days of walking because he has heard about this guy who can heal the sick. This is a selfless act by this guy. And what we're seeing in his actions is the beginning of a healthy seed of faith that's growing in a person. And it must be noted that this seed of faith has been planted in the soil of suffering. If you've ever suffered, you know, suffering often causes us to reach the end of our rope in matters like this guy's situation or whatever the equivalent of something was in your own life. Circumstances are out of control. And when they are out of control, when there are things that we cannot sort of manipulate or orchestrate to our benefit, when there are things that just truly exceed our pay grade to deal with stuff, they often remind us that we want someplace to turn, but in moments of despair, we feel like we might not have a place to turn. And this is where Jesus enters the scene. He's got no place else to go. And although I'm sure it doesn't make Jesus feel great that he was the last option on the list, it's an incredible testimony to the grace of our God that Jesus will still receive us like this. Like we can search the world over looking for hope and joy and fulfillment and circumstance. We can literally let Jesus be the last thing we look to. But when we turn to him, he will receive us like, we, like he was the first option. It's a story of incredible grace here. And it shows us that fiery darts, suffering, they can have, at least in the Christian faith, redemptive qualities. Because they often cause us to think about and depend more deeply on God. As a result, our faith in him, wherever it is when we approach him, it has the opportunity to grow. Now, based on what I just said, I think a natural question you likely have right now is this. How does this action how does this guy walking a great distance to see Jesus, how is this the beginning of a healthy seed of faith? And I just want to say that this 25-mile walk is the beginning of a tremendous act of faith. And it's one very different than the Galilean crowds. Unlike the Galilean crowds who see Jesus perform miracles in Jerusalem, 
and then want him to come to them again to continue doing stuff for them. This is the big difference. The Galileans are in the presence of Jesus. They see what's going on. They can like reach out and touch it. And because of that, they get a little selfish with it. They, they almost have no faith in it. They just think like this guy can do amazing things and we would like him to you know, stop his kingdom agenda and come on back to our town so he can satisfy our every need. In other words, we know the world has great need, Christ, but come on home to us and just continue to pull your rabbits out of the hat to make our lives great. Who cares what's going on up the road with this guy's, you know, kid? Make my life better. They have this in front of them and they, they miss it. That's what's crazy about this. They have, they have the physical example and they miss it. Yet the royal official hasn't seen Jesus do any of that stuff. He's very far away. He simply heard, the rumor has spread that Jesus, his, his love and his care for the hurting and for the suffering is unrivaled. And he is hurting and suffering and so is his son. And after hearing of Christ's goodness, frankly, he is one of the main points of this. Without having seen Jesus do anything, he believes that Jesus can do something for his son. Doesn't know him, hasn't seen him do anything. He's just heard the rumor and he believes that this guy can do something for his son. So he packs his bags, walks 25 miles to find him. And this father's story is included at the end of this because it's the hope of the story. We don't want to be left on the Galilean story of transactional faith. We don't want to be left with the reality that we can use God. That's a terrible way to send you home today. It's true, we can use God. But what John leaves us with is the fact that even if we use God, God will look to us and he will show us why it is better for us to be in the presence of God. That's what happens here. One group sees Jesus perform signs and wonders and has a questionable faith. This other, this official sees nothing and believes. The father's actions are a great example of what faith is. And because it's been several weeks since we have discussed this definition, I want to bring it up again today for summary. We de defined faith, and I want to put it back on your radar. It'll be behind me. From the Westminster Theological Dictionary, faith is defined as this. Faith in Christianity is belief, trust, and obedience to God as revealed in Jesus. It is the means of salvation or eternal life. And here's the part I find most, most applicable. Not that the side of this which comes about Jesus is not applicable, but I'm saying here's how this affects life. It is the means of salvation or eternal life, and it, and it affects all dimensions of one's existence, the intellect, the emotions, and the will. What it means is faith is meant to, to, to in, infect in a good way every area of our life, affect it in every way. And with that in mind, I want to share two other verses with you. There are lots of verses on faith, but these, these sort of get at the heart of what we're discussing today. And through them, I hope you will be able to backtrack and see how this guy's actions are really beginning to exemplify important truths about faith. Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, we read this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. The author of Hebrews is telling us, like, God has looked upon the earth with great favor when the people of the earth have trusted in him, when there has been a confidence in him and at times in life when we couldn't sort out what was going on in front of us, we trusted him enough to bring us through to the other end. In John 6, 28 through 29, Jesus himself says this. Uh, later in the Gospel of John, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Think about this. They're saying, like, what do we do? What's the transaction? What do I have to do to get God to love me? And Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. That does not mean that at times and as we grow, there isn't work and responsibility. But you can see this question is so etched on the human heart that we almost can't understand grace. 
we say like, what are we going to do, God, to make you love us? And he says, nothing. Just look to my son. This is the story of the Galilean, and this is where this guy and this royal official is right now. In both of these verses, we can see that genuine faith isn't a trading of services like the Galileans practice. It is a deep and profound trust in the one whom God has sent to the earth on our behalf. And based on that definition we looked at, those verses, if we look at the the royal official, what we can see is he has the roots of a genuine faith growing. He's not ready to change the world for Jesus, but Jesus is not expecting that from him right now. He is learning to look to Jesus and trust him. When without seeing Jesus do anything, he is confident he can do something. And so he makes this journey to speak to him about his son. Now, all that said, while this is faith, I don't ever want you to think faith is, faith is sort of a never-ending growth in our lives, meaning we can have a very little bit of it when we start. We can grow in it in all of our days. We can have seasons of life where we lack it. Faith is, is fluid. And by fluid, God is not changing when it comes to faith. But our interaction with it can be because we have an intellect and we have emotions and we have will. And at times, these things can really be in tune with faith. At times, they can be out of tune. My point here is that this is not the end game of his faith. I don't want you to hear this as the greatest example of faith. But it does give us hope, no matter where we are, with or without faith, that we can have it, that there is always a starting point. And although the father makes this faith journey to find Jesus, once he does find him, we can see that it breaks down a little bit. The father, seeing Jesus now, begins to immediately think like the Galilean. He starts persistently asking Jesus to physically come home with him to heal his son. But Jesus will not. What's happening here is he says, I believe that you could heal my son, but now you've got to come with me because I don't think you can do anything unless you're actually with me. In other words, he is beginning to look at this problem in a, in a deeper way. Jesus rebukes the crowds here. What he says is he, he starts to address this need to see me do something in order to have faith in me attitude. The father asks him to come home. And in verse 47, Jesus replies, it's a pretty hard-edged statement, but it's one that is worth hearing, to these persistent requests by declaring, you will not believe unless you see a sign. That's his response to him. In other words, the sign that you will believe I'm going to do what I'm going to do is that if I go with you and physically heal your son. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus stretches this man's faith and he says, go, your son, your son will live. He rebukes him and then still shows him an immeasurable amount of grace. And here is where I believe the second and most profound display of faith that the father shows. The first is in his journey. When it it comes to his son here, though, I actually think this is the moral of our story, the faith moral of our story for this man and for us. There are two reasons why this act of faith is a greater display of his trust in Jesus than actually just coming to see Jesus. They both revolve around having the courage to trust Jesus' word without seeing an immediate outcome. The first thing we see here is in his response, if the father refuses to leave without taking Jesus at his word. In other words, if he says, I'm not leaving this place without you, and I'm going to throw you over my shoulder and carry you home. If he does this, it immediately undermines every element of faith he has. He automatically goes back into this situation of trying to control his circumstance. And the irony in this is that it was his, the realization that he couldn't control his circumstances that brought him here. And so he doesn't trust Jesus if he actually continues to demand that Jesus come home with him. Going home Listening to what Jesus says here is another great act of faith. And this is the second thing we see here. If he chooses to leave without Jesus going with him, what happens is he's got another dilemma. 
He's got to make a 25-mile walk home believing that what Jesus just said is going to happen. There is no concrete assurance that his son is going to live. He does not know Jesus well. He just knows of him. So he's got to either control the circumstance, which he cannot do, or trust Jesus with what was likely a ton of anxiety. Even doing as Jesus said, like following the word of Jesus, was a step of faith. And I don't think it was an easy one for him because it meant he had to walk home by himself, wondering whether or not he was going to enter the room of his son and find him alive or dead. I mean, I want you to try to think about this sympathetically for a moment. What if I, you had a sick child and I said, your son's going to live, and then you had to walk to essentially North Ormond on 95? Think about what the next days of your life would be like. They would be pretty torturous, wondering what had happened. The beauty and the challenge of this is that all this man had to hang on to was Jesus' word. Words from a person he didn't even really know in a season of life where he desired evidence that his son would be healed. It's in that season Jesus asks him to trust him, to go home, and to see that he's going to make good on the promise. And this, my friends, is the beautiful but hard edge that we deal with when it comes to having an ultimate trust and hope in Jesus. This is truly where our ability to use the shield of faith begins to show itself and how we understand its role in our lives. During some of the most difficult times of our lives, we can find ourselves, and if, and if you haven't been in one of these circumstances, you will be at some point, nobody escapes this, we find ourselves in similar places. All we have to do, or all we, all we have to hold on to are the, are the words of Jesus. Our circumstances are beyond what we can deal with, at least in our own control. That doesn't mean we can't handle them. It just means they're beyond fixing. During those times, there is nothing harder or better to do than to hold on to Christ's word. I mean, that's sort of the, the linear line of reasoning here. You can try to control a circumstance that you can't and watch that spiral out of control. Or for those of us who look to Jesus, we can try to invite Jesus into this and ask him to make his presence more significant in our lives. And if we're being honest, we all have stories of a royal official in our lives. We all have our, our own versions of this. Moments where things we have believed in our faith are challenged like the truth you held on to for 25 years that then gets rocked at its core at some point. Moments where what we say we trust in is run through the crucible of life and it comes out pretty bruised and we're not sure whether or not we trust in it anymore. It's in these moments that God does some of his best work because if we are seeking him in those moments, God will reveal himself to us. That's the point of this. God will reveal himself to us. Now, I'm a fairly skeptical person when it comes to dogmatic statements like that. And so maybe you're here saying like, well, how do we know God is going to reveal himself to us like that? How can I trust the word of God, the things he has said to me? How is it that you can make a statement like that? Well, that's a great question. And I want to say that we can be confident in it for a number of reasons, but there's only one I want to share with you today. The whole story of scripture, the whole story of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is God in ever-increasing ever ways revealing himself to us. The whole premise of the Christian faith is not God hiding himself from us. It is God making good on the promise that he wants to reveal himself to us. Now that's big cosmic stuff right there, right? Let's take it down to earth for a moment. He wants to reveal himself to us in the daily moments of life. The big stuff and the small stuff. Ultimately, in Jesus. This is how he wants to reveal himself to us. God proves over and over again that he wants us to know him. He doesn't want an impersonal relationship with us. He does not want to see us from a distance. He wants us to be known by him 
and he wants us to know him. The desire that God has to know us never changes. But the desire that we have to know God is, con- is perpetually in, in flux. And the goal of faith is that over the, the journey of our lives, however long they might be, we in increasing but ever imperfect ways grow in our faith. What I'm trying to say here, when you think of the royal official, when you think of our lives, God isn't trying to hide from you. He wants to be known and wants you to be known by him. Yet there are times in our lives where our faith, what we have chosen to trust in, can completely keep us from experiencing God like this. And this is the faith challenge set before the royal official in this passage. He's got a decision to make. Do I take Jesus at his word or do I trust in something else for the fate of my son? And what happens here is there is a stretching of faith. Jesus stretches his faith to make it stronger. That might seem painful to us watching it, but at the end of the day, when that guy got home, he had a different level of love and affection for Jesus. And Jesus will often do this. This is part of why we have faith. He will, he will work in our lives in this way. And that's why this father's actions, unlike the spurious crowds that came to Jesus wanting something out of him, they show us that truth faith means Jesus actually does desire something from us. He doesn't want us to trade services with him. I hope I've been clear enough on that. What he wants is our trust and our hope. What he wants, if you want to see the works of God in your life, is that we, we look to the one who can bring about the work of God in our life. He asks for your heart. He asks for your affection. He asks for your mind. He asks for your will. He wants you to trust him. And no matter how meager it is, he wants that to grow. And whether we like it or not, life trial is one of the most effective ways God can deepen our faith in him. He can bring out about a beautiful promise in very hard edges. The hard edges of life can often be softened by the grace of Jesus. And we see this in John as a story of suffering. There are many of them in the New Testament. These stories of hardship, Jesus uses them to do wonderful things in the life of people. I want to be super clear because this will be on the internet forever. I'm not saying Jesus wants us to suffer wonderfully. I'm not saying that uh, suffering is something we should long for. I don't care for it. I'm just going to be very straight. I'm just saying it is a reality in our world, and God can do things that are beautiful through it. Here's how we'll wrap up. I want to say sort of one last thing. True, true faith, because this is really what the aim of this section has been. True faith is best displayed in our lives when we learn to surrender our situation to Jesus and trust his word. Surrender does not mean that we sort of function with a benevolent ignorance or that we check out of circumstances. That's not what I mean by surrender. In all ways, God wants us to be responsible. He wants us to care. He wants us to work. He wants us to value things. Surrender doesn't mean check out and hope it works out. Surrender means we recognize our human faculties and where they are limited, and we trust in something greater than ourselves. That's what surrender means. And so think about this. The royal official comes to Jesus standing on the bottom rung of the faith ladder. He's like one incremental step above, uh, uh, above the Galileans. And it's probably fair to say that he had some Galilean in him as he was taking this journey. He comes like the crowds, yet he leaves believing Jesus' word without the sign. In other words, the thing Jesus condemns, he actually doesn't do it. He goes. He trusts Jesus without the evidence of seeing what he said was going to happen. And think about this. We know this is the most interesting part of this story to me, and this is why I think it's the most significant faith story in the New Testament, one of them anyways. We know his son lives. This is the irony of the Bible, if you read it. We can today take like 10 verses 
and talk about it for like 35 or 40 minutes. I haven't preached in like three weeks, so you might be here for three hours today. I don't know where this is going to go. I got fire in the belly this morning. But think about this, right? We know the beginning. We know the end. I'm talking about it. We'll discuss it in community groups. We can know the whole outcome of this story in all of about 90 seconds. But that is not the reality for these people in these pages. These are days, weeks. Who knows how long this man's son has been sick? This might have been years, right? We, in seconds, read elements of people's lives that, that are long journeys, e- epochs. This guy had a 25-mile journey to walk home, and I bet that was the longest faith walk of that man's life. It's probably the most significant one of all of his days, wondering what he was going to find when he got home. And so you see, taking Jesus at his word deepens his faith in Christ. And later on, we find out that he placed a more full faith in Jesus, and so does his family. This becomes the catalyst to start wanting to be around Jesus because he loves Jesus, not just because, because he heard that he could do great things. The great things are wonderful, but the real prize in this is Jesus. And so in every way, this story is a beautiful picture of what happens when you learn to trust the truths of Jesus. This humbled father approaches Christ with an incredibly anxious heart, but he leaves trusting that Jesus's way is the best way, even if he didn't fully understand every element of it in that moment. And this is really one of the greatest applications of what faith looks like when we get out of the ideal and put it in the real. We often have to trust Jesus's good word without fully understanding everything he's doing. And so as we wrap up this Shield of Faith teaching, this section, I, I want to leave you with these ideas. There are so many things you can choose to place your faith in today. That's the very first thing we spoke about. But out of all of them, Jesus is the most sensible. Faith, everybody has it, and they all have it in something. Everybody hopes or has some form of trust in something. But out of all the things that we can hope in, it really does us well. If we're going to place our ultimate hope in something, we ought to put a little thought into this. I just want to say that I believe Jesus is the most sensible because there is nothing under heaven. There is no circumstance, no resource, no person, no job, no amount of money, your physical body, our health. There's nothing, zero, that cannot and will not at some point be subjected to trial, to suffering, and to hurt. Nothing that I just mentioned is permanent. Even our physical bodies, as we all know, one day will, they will fade away. At some point, everything can be lost, at least the things we've mentioned here today. Every one of those things, I'm always reminded of this when we see hurricanes, especially because we've had a few here as of late, at least some close ones. Think about the shoreline of our beaches, right? They, the sand seems stable until a big storm comes in and we lose like, you know, three feet of, of sand to coastal erosion. They are subjected to the raging reality of the tide. Some of the things we think are firm in life might be washed away more easily than we might want to believe. That's the option of placing our hope in, in futile things or fragile things or temporal things. There is another option, though. We read about it today. We can think about faith from the angle of Jesus, who is unlike the sands on our shore or the circumstances of life. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is sovereign. He does hold the universe intact, according to Colossians, with the power of his word. He embodies truth and goodness and righteousness. He is never working in your life in a way that is not about his goodness, truth, or righteousness. There is no malevolence in him and how he cares for you. He loves you deeply, so much so that he put himself on the cross for us. And all I want to say since we opened this whole little section weeks ago by saying the idea that to have faith means you have checked out the capacity you have or walked away from thinking These ideas are ridiculous to me. 
If I'm going to use my brain, that's where I'm going to start with faith. We know concretely all these other things will fail us. Maybe use the brain to give Jesus a try. In closing, this story chronicles what Jesus does in a, a man's life, a father's life. And this is applicable to all of us today. He approaches him with desperation and he leaves with the beginning of a faith, all, of because, all because he takes Jesus at his word. And so I want to encourage you to remember what you place your faith in is important to know. It's er- because everybody has placed faith in something. Don't go through life without thinking about this. And today I ask you to examine whether or not you should put your faith in Jesus for the first time. Maybe it's time to reconsider what you have faith in. Maybe you have tons of questions about faith. We love those too. Wherever you are with faith, great amounts of it, absolutely skeptical of it, somewhere in the middle, all of that is welcome here. All we want to do is be a place that can encourage you and help you get to the place where you believe that Jesus is leading you. And so as we move into response this morning, these brief moments we have before we move out into our world, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about your faith, whatever it is, and what will you do about it when you leave this place? Pray with me.